This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. What is it that makes a startup a success in this day and age? In many cases, it requires a variety of different points, especially if you're going to for a high-growth business, and it may include support from a venture capitalist. VCs are a very important part of the startup community. In some cases, they're willing to take that leap because the idea of what it could be resonates with that seed funder. Josh Koppelman falls into that realm. He's founder and partner of First Round Capital. Uh, Josh is a 1993 Wharton grad who's part of a panel on founders and how companies get off the ground. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming today. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What, uh, tell us your story first about First Round and how you got that company off the ground. Because it wasn't your first company, but I think it's important for the conversation. Yeah, so actually it starts with my first company. I'd started and exited three companies before First Round. Yeah. And the first company I started while took $5 million to get to first product ship. So I had to raise a lot of venture capital to get started. Yeah. My second company was a company called uh, Half.com, yep. and that took $2.5 million to get the first product chip. My third company was a company called Turntide, which was started in 2003, and that took 750000 And I was angel investing and funding companies that were getting to first product chip for 500000 So in my own short career with three companies, it went from $5 million to 500000 right. At the same time, venture funds have been doubling and tripling in size and writing bigger checks. So here I was saying, wait a second, like entrepreneurs need less capital to get off the ground. VCs want to, cr- want, want, want to write bigger checks. There's yeah. a gap in the market. And that's, that was the idea behind First Round, the checks for, for founders to sort of take their idea to market. What were the bumps in the road that, that you saw in all three companies ate them off the ground? Because that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs and, and startups are, are dealing with each and every time that they, that they try and run out of company. Oh, it's never a straight line up. Right. Yeah. You know, so you, you know, you, there's a lot of survivor bias where like, you know, you know, when you exit on a company successful, everyone says, oh, that's great. Yeah. But, you know, starting a company is amazingly lonely. You, you're you're you're, <laughs> you're sitting at home and there's a lot of, you, you, you know, every day you decisions you've made poorly. I mean, I remember our first company was a company called Infonautics. We built a, an online search engine um, 10 years before Google and we blew it. We, yeah. we, were, we were focused on proprietary content versus open content. Like, I, I, you, know, you know, did that company go public? Yes. Was it a successful exit? Yes. But, yeah. but it's high up on my woulda, coulda, shoulda list in terms of um, we just we kind of felt that when we had a plan and we sold that plan to investors, we couldn't change it. Right. And we felt locked in and committed. And, and, um, and that was a big mistake. The right answer should have been, um, yes, we know we sold the investors one thing, but the market changed. The idea changed. And we should have had the courage and the of our convictions to go to our investors and say, and now we want to do something different. I, I wanted to talk to you for a second about branding because a lot of people do remember Half.com and the impact that it had. And actually, it's funny. I went back and I was looking at old articles about Half.com and saw the interview that you did on the Today Show <laughs> about you know the relationship with the city in Oregon trying to change its name from Halfway to Half.com Oregon. Yeah, you know, you look at that video and, and, and I'm a lot less gray uh, right? back then. <laughs> yes. But... Um, uh, yeah, so so when we were launching a company in 2000, and launching a dot-com in 2000 was an exercise just because you had so much money pouring into into advertising and media, and Pets.com with their sock puppets spending $10 million a month. Yeah. So we said we wanted to do a stunt that would put us on the map. 
Yeah. And we kept trying to figure out, my, my, my marketing team would get together and we'd all brainstorm, what's going to put us on the map? What's going to put us on the map? And we spent three hours in the room. And finally, after three hours, my head of marketing got so angry. He said, if you want to get on the freaking map, just buy it, convince it to change its name to half.com. <laughs> yeah. And we all laughed and then said, you know, that's not a crazy idea. So the next day, we Googled all of the towns that began with half. We figured half, uh, half Moon Bay would be a little too expensive. But we found uh, Halfway Oregon, a population 375. And the next day, he's on a plane out meeting with the mayor of Halfway Oregon. And $75,000, two jobs, and a snowplow later, yeah. um, the town unanimous city council unanimously agreed to change its name. And it got us... It got us over $30 million in media exposure. It was insane, the level of attention that we got. 60 Minutes, Today Show, Wall yeah. Street Journal, New York Times. What is it that attracts you for first round? What are the ideas that attract you the most right now? So, so it, I would argue that it's more founders than ideas. Okay. Um, we invest at the earliest stage, at the seed stage, right? So yep. everything that we see is wrong. A founder, you know, as soon as a founder hands out, you know, gives us their pitch deck, we know the product is wrong. We know the pricing is wrong. We know their go-to-market is wrong. We know their team is incomplete. We know the technology isn't built. So fundamentally, we have to bet on the founder. And we look for a few things. The first thing we look for is is an ability to, to, to what I'll say, go off the conveyor belt. I think I'm a, I'm a believer that in life, especially today, kids are raised on a conveyor belt. You go from elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school. You, yeah. you get pushed to do extracurriculars, pushed to study you know, hard for your store boards. You go to college. You got to do well in college, get the right internships. Like It's a conveyor belt. And you show up the first day of a cl- any class in Wharton, and what does the teacher hand you? A syllabus. Yeah. What's a syllabus? Yeah. It's a roadmap. Yeah. You don't have to guess what to read. You don't have to guess when the quizzes are and the tests are. That's it. So we look for people who have an exp- expertise in going off roadmap who are because starting a company, no one hands you a map. No sure. one hands you a syllabus. Yeah. You have to figure it out. So what we're looking for are people who can have historically done that and are comfortable doing that. Josh Koppelman, our guest. This is Knowledge at Wharton, and we are at the Wharton Global Forum in New York City at the Jazz at Lincoln Center. Uh, when I look at all the different companies that you've been involved with and you talk about some of the stories background uh you've got companies uh uber blue apron you know all of these different firms that that you've been involved with and i I saw a story uber was basically something that you know started out out of a uh, you know out of a basement or out of a living room at some point yeah um one of the co-founders of uber is a a gentleman named garrett camp and we had funded his last company a company called uh stumble upon which ebay bought so as he was um, gearing up for, at the time it was called Uber Cab, my partner Rob saw a tweet that Garrett put out there saying, yeah, just experimenting with Uber Cab. And he wrote, wrote him an email and said, all right, I'll bite. And the next thing, you know, we got, we, we had them come into our partner meeting and we were fortunate enough to, to lead their seed round. Yeah. And they, the, they spent about six months working out of our West Coast office yeah. in the very beginning. And it's just an, an incredible story to sort of see that journey up front, to see that company go through hypergrowth and, yeah. and and deal with challenges and overcome those challenges and transform transportation in so, most cities in the world. So because of the fact that you have the interest in the people more so than the company itself, it, there's really no sector that, that you look at and feel more comfortable than, than any other. There are sectors where we feel like we could make a more educated decision because okay. maybe we know more about it. But we've funded everything from ad tech to e-commerce to enterprise SaaS to rocket companies to drone to like... You know, we have companies with the, the largest satellite constellation in space, and we funded a company that sells bras. So we... we, <laughs> we, we That's we, a combination <laughs> right there, yeah. You know, you know for us, um, you know, what we really look for are sort of that contrarian idea. Where the, the idea where the founder um, 
thinks that they have a view of the world yeah. that other people laugh at, that, that, that people who are experts might say that's not the way it's always been done. And, you know, I'm going to be on a panel today with a bunch of those people, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, Neil and David at, at Orbi, we were institutional around. And, and, and you, you look at them and, like, the whole industry would have said selling glasses online. Yeah, yeah. Like, like that doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and they had a contrarian idea that others uh, dismissed. And we, we, we try to be, and we're wrong a lot. Our woulda, coulda, shoulda list is massive. But, it, but isn't that? What the startup world is in general, because they they say the percentage of startups that actually make it is very very small for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, venture is a very humbling business. I've been doing it now for for twelve years, thirteen years, and the the longer I've done it, the the more I realize um, the you know how much luck plays a role in it. You know, and 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 the uncertain and imprecise nature of the craft is because fundamentally you're you're trying to judge the unjudgeable and. You know, so, 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 um, and it's also a hard business because, you know, unlike sports, you kind of, you know, when you step up to play, you, you know, whether you hit the ball, or you didn't yeah. yep. here, you wait 10 years to figure out whether you got on base or not, whether you got a home run or not. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a very hard business. Um, and the longer I do it, the, 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 the more I realize how much, how much more room I could have to improve. One of the firms that I saw listed on your on your website is a company I was interested to talk to you about, and is called Raise Me, which is basically getting involved in the scholarship landscape and education. Why why was that interesting to you at the time? So Raise Me, the the founders are very compelling, but the idea was also extremely compelling. What they're realizing is that um, that universities are trying to reach out and build relationships with students while they're in high school. To try to build, uh, to try to attract the right demographics, to try to attract the, the to build a diverse student population, yeah. and to um, and to build a relationship with students. So they came up with this novel idea because they realized universities give a ton of scholarship money. All of that money is issued after a student is accepted. Yeah. So yeah. you apply, you accept, and then you and then they give you scholarships. They said, "What if we could give micro scholarships while students are in ninth grade, tenth grade, and eleventh grade?" You got an A on your English test, $25 micro-scholarship to this school. And, and, wow. and so students can basically pick a handful of universities that they want to be eligible to receive micro-scholarships, and they're updating their performance in high school, whether it's, whether it's an essay, whether it's a test, whether it's an attendance grade, yeah. and, and, and they're building this relationship. So like we, there are students this year who graduated and had over five dollars $6,000 in scholarships from one or two universities, yeah. and they had a four-year relationship. Before they sent in an application, we thought that was really interesting, and it took these 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 hundreds of millions of dollars, this pool of hundreds of millions of dollars scholarships, and transformed it from an after the fact benefit to a marketing program. As you mentioned, you're going to be on a panel that is going to be with a, a, a group of founders. So as you are out there and you're looking for that next idea, that next person to invest in, what do you say to founders these days? What do you say to the people that that are, are are thinking that they want to follow the entrepreneurial path. So, so I think one of the challenges today is that the entrepreneurial path is amazingly glamorized, whether it's the social right. network movie on Facebook, whether, whether it's Shark Tank. Um, you know, like, yeah. you know, and, and so um, there's a benefit, which is it's never been easier to start a company. The cost to co- start a company keep coming down. The barriers keep coming down. Um, but it's, it's not all up. And... And, and so, so a lot of what we look for is understanding 
the founders' grit and resilience, understanding, do, are, you know, do the founders understand the risks yeah. that they're about to take? Is it an informed process? I yeah. think, and 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 so so a lot of it is an honest conversation um, about what they're signing up for. Yeah. Um, because I think many founders are often surprised by the struggle. Yeah. Because you. you I wanted to ask you this before you left, is the fact that obviously retail and e-commerce is such an, it's an amazing area to kind of watch and see how it develops right now. Can a smaller idea in e-commerce, in retail, in this day and age, in comparison to what we see with the Amazons of the world? Absolutely. I, I believe that, you know, you know, you, you, you're seeing an explosion in direct-to-consumer brands. Um, you know, so I'm wearing my Allbirds. I'm wearing my Warby Parkers. Amazon doesn't play in that space. Yeah. Um, so, so new brands can be created all the time. Um, I also think that um, in the next 10 years, autonomous vehicles are going to fundamentally transform the nature of, of, of retail. Wow. What does a warehouse mean when, you know, like when your printer is out of t- toner cartridge, like what, wh- why, do you, why do you need a warehouse or a Staples when like there could be trucks with toner within five minutes and, sure, and getting a yeah. toner cartridge is just as easy as calling an Uber today? Yeah. Like, like what does Starbucks look like when the barista comes to, when the, when the drink comes to you? Like, you know, you look at the old fashioned and then imagine what happens with like everything else in retail yeah. when it's portable. So I think retail is, is, is rife for disruption. Josh, it's great meeting you. Nice meeting Enjoy you as well. Enjoy your time here at the, at the Global Forum. Thank you again. Thanks a lot. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.